Hi, and welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here. Brought to you by Tony and Saoirse. Hi, Alison, how's it going? And thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's lovely to be here with you um, today, uh, Tony and Saoirse. So good to see your face. Saoirse and I have been really excited about this one. Alison Goldsworthy, who is with us today, is a movement builder. She's a polarization expert. And you are also co-author of Poles Apart, which is a book that I think is safe to say that Saoirse and I devoured. Can I say that, Saoirse, on your behalf as well? Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) So the three of us, it's interesting, because the three of us have known each other for a long time. And I would say that every time I think of both Saoirse and you, you're both like two women myself included, but I think you two are a little bit more like super involved in politics that really sit at the intersection of politics, technology, the evolution of technology. And I think a theme that the three of us have often talked about that we are excited to have you on the podcast today is polarisation. Ali, thank you for being here. So I actually am going to start with the question that your book poses to answer, right? Which is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I have it, are societies destined to pull further apart or can they find a way to bridge the divide? That question is what Poles Apart is about. And so why that? Why was that the topic? What was What is it in your life? What is it that drove you to say, this is what I'm writing a book about? Because I want to answer that question. Yeah, gosh. So, well, I suppose the short answer is that I made my name as making as much trouble as I possibly could. Mm. Um, and being a bit of a rebel and doing movements, you know, to, to change laws or persuade government businesses to do things that used to make me chortle heartily when um, uh, you know I could get hold of big energy providers customers quicker than they could tell them they people should switch away rather than pay extra on their gas bill and all of this kind of stuff it was that was a lot of fun but uh, something happened in about 20 from about 2011 2012 um, onwards where I began to just slowly feel guilty and I noticed more and more divisions coming around me Mm. and I you know I loved building these movements I could persuade millions of people to do something you know like every week it was great I felt really powerful um and sometimes I brought about change but I never once thought maybe I'm creating divides and I'd see you know I'm Welsh I I live in California now but I'd see up in Scotland what was going on with the referendum there with like some amazing tech and things like that happening and I it followed everything that I would have done about building Mm. identities and loyalty and sending people up ladders of engagement and all sorts of other things that some of your listeners will be familiar with Mm. but no one appeared to have put much thought into whether they were part of the problem and whether they could solve it so nowadays I guess I make the most trouble I can by suggesting people who who disagree with each other politically might actually be able to work something out rather than getting people who disagree with each other politically to disagree more which is really easy Mm. and it is it is it is really very easy easy to do that to uh, to otherize each other like you should vote for this person because that other person believes fundamentally against who you are like, yeah it's, the otherizing it, it's easy and lazy frankly and Ooh. i was done with being oh, I lazy i was done with being lazy that's powerful ellie that is a very powerful statement and we've all done that you know we've all done yeah. some of this stuff ourselves and i am conscious that we're three white women saying it you know and like there are occasions where being polarizing is entirely legitimate <laughs> um and the right thing to do but it's a default mm. and it's a modus operandi and it's just like no come on we can we yeah. can all grow up from being toddlers in movement building now to something a little bit more sophisticated pulling on that thread ali how did we end up here as a society like when you've been doing your research 
Do you feel that we are more polarized than ever? Or is that just a simplistic wrong view of looking at things? And I think the second part of that question also that I'm curious about, you just mentioned that you now live in California, grew up in Europe. Does polarization look a little bit differently in America versus back in Europe? Or is it just like a a global phenomenon that's happening right now? Or is there some geopolitical aspects of it that's interesting so in general it's rising I think it's probably worth me for the listeners explaining what I mean by polarization so lots of people think oh my word you know someone is pro pro pro-choice and I'm pro-life and we really disagree or you know I was a brexiteer and a remainer and that's not on policy positions the disagreement that we are talking about or I'm pro let's let's go I'm pro trans-pacific partnership or I'm against it which is a free trade thing for people who who are not familiar with it you know that's not what we're talking about what we're talking about is effective polarization which is the or the posh name for it and um what it means is it's group based it's identity based so it's when someone dislikes somebody else because of the political often the the party political label that they have so it's when someone sees someone who when you know and I write this I was I am a remainer I did not vote for for leave but yeah I just said I am not I believe in remain it is mm. part of my identity mm. not a belief and that's a really good litmus test and once you start doing that a whole series of unconscious actions start kicking in about your your political other so very often you're less likely to think that they are trustworthy or reliable you're more likely to think they're selfish unsurprisingly there's uh, research showing that that means you're less likely to hire them for jobs you're less likely to put them on teams you're less likely to be happy if your child falls in love with somebody and wants to marry them it will affect the medical options that come through from doctors it will you know all sorts of things all walks of life that happen and when you know some polarization is inevitable and healthy in a democracy but when it starts spilling over into other areas that to me is when it's a really big problem and we are very much there you asked if it's getting worse generally yes it is getting worse there are some unique characteristics in the US um, but there's unique characteristics you know everywhere else generally polarization ebbs and flows but in layman's terms once it's you know and we're not the most polarized we have ever been in our history I mean a a rudimentary study of history would tell people that there were times in Europe when we were all at war with each other you know and in America when they were but once you once you start to break things and there's no middle ground in effect where people can can cross hop from one group to another without too much difficulty um uh then societies become really fractured and that once it really once the system starts to break and there's no middle it's like a bridge, basically. If there's no bridge that can be built between divides, then you end up with two very separate societies. And at that point, war starts to become more likely, but not inevitable, right? Mm. And so, and people ask that, you know, sort of say, oh, is civil war definitely going to happen, you know, for example, in America? And the answer to that question is no, it does not. Is it making violence more likely? Yes. Is America super special? Mm, yes, for all sorts of reasons, but not necessarily this one. People with, you know, with long memories will remember in Greece and in Spain and in Portugal, you know, around the time of the financial crash in 2008, there was a lot of violence on the street there. And there was a lot, particularly in Greece, people saying, oh my God, the home of democracy, if you're a white man, the home of democracy, then like, you know, maybe it's all in peril. And it pulled back, right? There was violence and protest and significant trouble there, but it, it did pull back. And so provided people get on it and they're cognizant of it and they start trying to bridge divides, that then of course things can can go back to a less polarized state if they don't things might be quite broken for quite a long time what do you mean when you say if people get on it like in a very practical space when we're thinking outside of the realm of academia what does that look like to get on it on a daily basis 
so there are things people can do to to think about it. So we are, you know, there's a, a fairly famous saying in behavioural psychology that your function or your, how you behave is a result of both who you are and the environment that you are in, right? And it's quite hard to fundamentally change who you are or how your brain is wired, uh, but it is much easier to change the environment that you are in and that you operate in. And that can be everything from, you know, encourage, you know, if you're a manager, you know, as you hire people, think about diversity, not just in terms of, of gender or race, I don't argue politics should be a protected characteristic to use a European term but you know think about like how diverse is your team because they'll hold each other to better scrutiny into account if you um if you then are you know if you're at home and you're having a dispute with a family member about something actually sit there and think well have they had an experience that was different to mine that caused that what was it in the environment that caused them to do that what could you do to create an environment where you could have a better discussion or appreciate what was going on you know all of these kind of things and that the litmus test sort of where the book started to come from was actually a bit of an obsession in my mind with the question when did people change their mind and why mm. and how hard was it for people to change their mind and even more to admit that they had changed their mind you know which is another we sort of program to forget when we change our mind it sort of is almost physically painful for us to do it um and so that that is you know that was that's that's one of the things that people can think about is i would say to them when did you last change your mind very hard question for people to answer and then you say what do you think helped you change your mind and very very rarely is it someone shouting at them that's for help um Ali, when you talk in the book around, just based on everything you just said there, there is a key component, right, of lack of access to alternative views. So when you talk about the ability to change your environment, when, you ha- when you're in a challenge socioeconomic situation, when you are in, a, there's a thousand different versions of that, but how does someone get on it if they have the lack of access to those alternative views? So I think it's worth adding a caveat to that. So yes, lack of access is definitely one thing, though the internet has made that easier. You know, what no one is short of is different points of view that they could go and read. It's whether they they come to them. And we can probably have a conversation about how much responsibility the algorithms have the to, to play for that. Um, yeah, filter bubbles, I'm not there. I don't don't really believe in filter bubbles, except for extremely polar, extremely politically active people who obviously often lead opinion pieces and newspapers and so yes they are in filter bubbles but most people are not in yeah. filter bubbles right like um uh, most people have more balanced lives for example like tony they'll have a lot you know having a whole congregation of people in formula one who they'll contact who you might have no idea of their political views or what's going on i like that you put my name and balanced life in the same sentence ellie i'll take that <laughs> Yeah, I know you can be. Yeah, well, you know, it's got to be some balance. So in the long run, or you can't be as successful as you are. No, that's um, very true. <laughs> she says, raising her eyes to the ceiling for listeners who can't pick up on it. Um, but Sasha, sorry, your your question. Um, I should just draw back down to this: was like what people can practically, what can they can practically do, um, and how they can think about it with with where they're they're changing their mind. And as I say, like the environment can be can be a totally can be a really critical thing but it's also being aware of how close-minded they might be you know and I touched on one of the examples I'll often use you know I said people find it hard to to remember when they've done it it should be really easy to find someone who's changed their mind on gay marriage you know um in both in, mo- in most of Europe and in the US you you try tra- doing it find someone who will do that or they'll say oh no I always really believed in it I just said something different publicly or went from that you know and that's and that's because it's really hard for us to hold different viewpoints in in our things so where Sorsha mentioned you know we can go and get facts or you could go and get, even if you do get them there is a 
tendency, one, for if it has changed people's mind, for them to forget about it, but secondly, to make them hold on to that original view even more strongly because mm. they feel threatened about it. So, and even if you do issue corrective, that's why like things like fact checkers are of limited use, particularly in a polarised environment, because it's it's opinions and feelings that change minds, generally, not facts. And there's a whole way about how the Socratic method and everything, you know, which is the, to use non-academic like parlance, is, you know, the, the field of debate and how you sort things out, that actually falls down quite badly in that stage once you're polarised, because you immediately see someone from a different point of view and think, oh, well, I'm just not going to trust what they're going to say, or I don't like it, or I'm going to ignore them. And, and many of us will have had that experience Experience. anyway almost everybody I think has had an experience with someone they really dislike so something they agree with and they think oh mm. god that's really unfortunate Jesus yeah. I don't want that to be the case you know and at least they're cognizant of it but very often that process happens in a subconscious way and that you know is both a, a sign of a, a polarized environment and also a sign or when it's widespread of a very polarized environment that it's then really hard to pull back from that because it encourages more and more distance to start growing what I found when I moved to, to Nation Builder and, you know, the customers that we were serving were from a broad spectrum. And it was one of the first questions that our founder and CEO at the time had asked me is how comfortable are you working and enlisting all the political parties, knowing where yeah. I stood politically. Yeah. But I thought I knew how uncomfortable it was to be sat at a table with people who held very different political or other opinions than myself. I genuinely thought I knew and I thought I was ready for it. And then I realized that how could I be ready? Because my whole life had been in this ultimate bubble of people who fought like me, grew up like me, had the same political beliefs as me, were pro-European like me. And it was such an interesting exercise that I realized it definitely got easier. But I go back to those moments and God, Sosha, you must have remember some of those moments of just remembering how hard it actually is of what it makes you feel like when you're sat there going I want to be really mad right now but I'm trying to understand where someone is coming from from a very different point of view it's such a hard exercise to do of like sitting in that really uncomfortable space where you want to like latch on to the things that you were normally taught which was just stand your ground like get that like as you say ruffle feathers like say something that's a little bit more polarizing to make your point or get your point across that generally never ends anywhere good I think for that, for me, I have to like ground it in the framework that was that you presented or you and your co-authors presented, Ali, of like belief versus attitude versus values. And which of those buckets do my like, you know, opposite opinions with the individual who's in the room with me fall into? Is it my values? Like to my core, I fundamentally believe the opposite of the person at the table. Is it my attitude? Is it in the way in which you're like presenting an argument that I disagree with you? Or is it in my belief? And I've had countless experiences of, you know, people in each of those buckets and me experiencing it in each of those buckets. And one that I will like share publicly is around when I made the decision to move into software from um, politics. And I was, still am, identify as a Democrat. I grew up grew up in the Massachusetts politics bubble in terms of my growing up with American politics and Massachusetts for those of you listening um, especially across the pond is a blue state and by a blue state what that means is they vote Democrat across the ticket um and so I came from a world of demonizing like literally if you were a Republican to me you were like the devil you were the antichrist I could not imagine anything um, worse than like having to interact. And I then moved into the world of tech 
and out of this kind of like very one-sided, very pigeonholed world. Um, and I met a very dear friend of mine still to this day, Jay Godfrey, who worked on Mitt Romney's campaign when I was working on Obama's campaign. And I sat down in a room with him and had a, an hour and a half conversation. And all of my beliefs of Republicans were the other and like were Jesus, like devil Christ people were completely shattered from having an hour and a half-ish conversation and seeing him as a human being. They just all gone in that moment. And what I find really interesting is, in, and that's not unusual that, that you say that, I'll come back to my politics and how it helped inform what was going on, you know. And like Mitt Romney, as is now evidenced, is really no Republican lackey, right? Like, and I realised that he fought his campaign much more on a slightly more yeah. terminology, but right-wing ticket than where he is. But, you know, the the and he gets very little reward, Mitt Romney, for doing what he does. In fact, quite quite the opposite. Oh, yeah. He gets an awful lot of pain um, for, for what's happening. But if you are a political operative and you're wanting to target swing voters, right... Like that's the, the the method of doing that is exactly the opposite of what a lot of us do in terms of movement building to engage and enrage our base. And that, you know, we, uh, you know, so when I was doing some of the research for the book and quite close to some people at Save the Children, they have a now abandoned policy. Their entire movement building policy was built on engage and enrage. Right. Like that was what the, and, and other people had it with a less catchy name. That was exactly how it worked. So like um, that, that's a that's a thing. And I, I suppose I was, you know, I was a, a liberal Democrat. I'm, I'm not any longer. I left party politics for all sorts of reasons we can get into or not. Um, and um, the Lib Dems generally where we were, we were pretty good at winning. But as a general rule across the country, we were not good enough at winning to ever be able yeah. to govern on our own, which always meant that we had to work with other people. Mm. And that gave me a sort of psychology of like, well, you know, they, they could be all right. You know, like if you wanted to bring about any change, then you have to do that. And And I think that's really valuable. And I'm very struck, you know, when I was out in uh, I campaigned a bit for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and there were a couple of events that really, you know, I ended up putting on a course at Stanford when I was when I was there, partly as a result of this. But we went out campaigning in Nevada, in the most marginal county, in the most one of the, the most marginal seats, and they had no squeeze material for mm. third party voters, you know. And that's not because they didn't exist, you know. There was a decent libertarian sized vote, and there was Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate, and it was like it just didn't occur to them that these people could be there, or that, that they could be the difference between winning and losing but of course it came to the election and I just I just couldn't quite believe it and then I happened to go to there was a Trump rally he was there in Reno when I was there that weekend and I was so appalled by the behavior of some of my colleagues from Stanford and how they talked to Trump voters and how they presumed they were really stupid and mocked them and it didn't occur to them that something could have gone on that might have just made them curious or they'd gone there because that because they were curious about finding out about Trump and maybe they weren't all out and all they could see was these people support Trump they must be racist homophobes who hate women and all that kind of stuff and I was having a having a chat with um, I went to high school in southern Indiana with a friend from there who was like I'd really like to support Hillary Clinton but honestly how can she pretend that she's a massive feminist with how she behaved to that Monica Lewinsky and you know what like I didn't have a good answer to that and and all of these things sort of came together and made me think this polarization is like a not only is it, you know is it does it inhibit winning on the whole it's bad for society and it makes me really close-minded and let alone the behavior it had in in people that I was with mm. hearing you talk about Hillary Clinton and Trump reminds me of the vote leave yeah 
pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, it was the same thing. And it was interesting, even just talking with people like my dad, who were just like, how can you sit down in a room with the Vote Leave campaign team because I was helping them with the software. But they're people who have a fundamental belief that they are doing the right thing. It's people who truly believe that they are on a mission and they are going to make the world a better place, whether they're informed, not informed. It's just so fascinating of how quickly and how easy it is to fall into that othering. And the corollary of that, that I, I don't know if it happened to your dad, is you think your side can do no wrong. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, so to me, some of the most concerning research, and it's really hard to really do this in a rigorous way, is about the likelihood of believing sexual assault allegations from your own side or from others, and how less likely people are to believe them if they come from their own political tribe. And I do not, I absolutely do not think whether people are deprived of their liberty or not should be dependent on whether you agree with their politics. Like, at that point, democracy yeah. has got a pretty bloody big hole in it, to my mind. Um, and And that's... You know, that that is really concerning. And you can see, like, in terms of corporate governance, you know, to, like within boards, if everybody's from the same group, they're much less likely to see things. You know, you can see scrutiny just falls through the floor. And, you know, that it sort of loops back to, a, you know, a, to me, a lot of the diversity and inclusion debate misses this about people from different groups or it's slightly tokenistic groups. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you see diversity in one plane, you don't notice it in others. And one way I've been really aware of that is you know that's how I can walk into a room which has got loads of white women in it and think oh this is diverse yeah. and then be like no no <laughs> everybody in this room is white I can't believe I ever thought that was diverse like that is that's bonkers so but also how you can build what you think would be a diverse team even in gender race disability all these kinds of everybody thinks the same way and they've all got the same background like one you're stigmatizing innovation and two how are you all going to scrutinize each other because you all think you're on the same team against somebody else like and that is that's a recipe for disaster in an organisation. Nowhere is that more apparent than in the Brussels bubble, where every you think that you're in a room full of diverse people because they're Spanish, Italian, German, oh. but they are all pro-European and they're all white. And you think, wait a minute, and they've all been brought up in the same schools and education, which is interesting because that was my idea of I'm coming from a really diverse team. Yes, and then yes. you go, actually, no. But how do you stop that? Because, like, speaking from a hiring perspective, I can't ask you what your political views are or if you grew up wealthy. Like, I can't, I actually can't digest that information. So how do mm. I do it? It's interesting you say that too, Sorsha, because I, I think of it through the lens of, you're looking at through the lens, obviously, of the recruiter with a desire and a passion to be as diverse as possible and to go and find those people. And if you think of it from a lens of someone who's trying to be recruited, it is really hard to put yourself out there as this really diverse, different thinking person when you're in front of a group that feels pretty homogenous. It's hard to say, and these are all my fundamental beliefs and this is how I'm different. If you, It's like, it's such an interesting paradox. 100%. But also more than that, like people like being told they're right. Yep. You know, we all do. It no, makes you feel no. better. So someone, I know that's the thing. You're totally right about that. So you're totally right about that. Um, but, but, you know, and so if you're interviewing someone saying like, no, I really agree with you. I think that's like, oh yes, that view you hold very dear. Oh, you're so precious with it. You're entirely right. Why don't we do a profile of you in the newspaper? Oh, yes. Then get other acclaim for it. When, when actually what you really want is someone to say, can you tell us where you disagree with this? Well, tell me more how you got there, because I'm, I'm not following the train of thought. I did that when I was trying to be recruited, and the guy did not like my questioning of just like, 
help me understand how you got there. I'm really curious what this looks like. And you could see the frustration of, I can't work with you. And it's really interesting you say that. So one of the ways you can help loosen people's beliefs is something called the illusion of explanatory depth. So people think they know more about a topic than they do. Um, And often you can use this on really banal examples. So you say to someone, hey, do you know how a toilet works? They'll be like, yeah, I know how a toilet works. Or how does a fridge freezer work? Or how does a zip work? Or a zipper, to use American English. And if you're my husband and you're an engineer, you know exactly the answer to all those questions. If you are a normal person like me, then you go, yeah, of course I know how a toilet works. You know, you yank on the yeah, and then it. It, it works. So, or how does a zip work? You know, you just lift it up. And then you try and say, no, actually explain to me on a step-by-step basis how a zip works. And you can't do it. And it becomes much easier for people to say, well, maybe I didn't know as much about this as I thought I did. And then that opens your mind up. So this illusion of explanatory depth where you ask, there was a great question to ask, Sorsha, uh, sorry, uh, Tony, because like it, it does, it, it helps loosen up, but people find it extremely challenging to answer that question. Yeah. And even harder um, to say, I don't know. Oh, I need to have a better answer for that. You know, and that relies on like psychologically safe environments as well as who they are and all this kind of stuff. When it's benign, it's a very easy thing to do. But if someone came at me, right, I'll put myself in this like from a personal, if someone was like, you don't, you know, explain to me how a political campaign starts from, you know, beginning to finish. And they felt that my description of it was inadequate. I would have a very hard time yeah. with accepting that as reality. I just, I, I know I would like fundamentally. And then layer in if that person was someone who, you know, fundamentally disagreed with me in a political lane, not a like worldview. Um, and so when you add that layer, like you remove the toilet example, which is a great example, but like when you put that into your real life, that's nearly impossible to get folks to be able to move into it. Yeah, I mean, my identity is not, fortunately, for everybody involved as a toilet mender. So it doesn't really... <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't like, break it, your soul it, to it, not it be. It feels... No, I just feel slightly <laughs> stupid, right? My biggest fear of having kids is realising kids obviously always ask, but how, but why? Of realising I know nothing about life. Of having to go, I don't know. I honestly don't know. That is one of my biggest Yeah, as someone with an 11-month-old who can't really talk yet, because, you know, they can't when they're 11 months, but is now fascinated with the toilet. Like, (laughs) I am like, oh, my word. You know, I don't get... Yeah, literally almost in we go, unfortunately. And it's very (laughs) common. And this is the highbrow chat that you had me on for. This is why I wrote an academic book, so I could talk about my my son trying to show his hands down the toilet. Yeah. Well, so, but it's crazy you bring that up, right? Because my five-year-old niece has just gotten to the question, or to my sister, of what is God? Yeah. Because our dog, our dog went to heaven, and then her friend in school, her grandparent, passed away this week and went to heaven, where God is. And so she came home with the, what is God question? And how, did, in God's name, do you break that? Do you mean God's name? Wow. I, was, I thought that was a pu- intended pun, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was not an intended it. pun. <laughs> but, but like, how do you break down those types of questions to a five-year-old that at that point in their life, you're they're, you know, they are actually picking up on that. They are grounding their own understanding of values and beliefs. And how do you have an honest and open dialogue with them on like, what is God? It's actually, you know, a belief that you have versus a scientific, like... I, I power to parents who have those conversations on the daily. 
Yeah, it's really tough. But it's what's really interesting is one of the other good ways to bridge divides is to find something you have in common that is not about your political identity. And I will say, you know, motherhood has been one long ride for me of finding things I have in common with people. Because, you wow. know, like, you know, you suddenly end up having chats with complete random strangers about, you know, how hard you're finding breastfeeding or like what you're concerned about your kid and they've got really useful and really valuable advice for you. And I find, you know, it really disappointing, actually, that there aren't more groups within civil society in America that are looking at those. There are some that look at faith as a way to try and bridge divides and go from there. Yep. But actually, my, my personal view is stuff where you are doing something and finding an interest that you share with a political other is probably more more useful, you know, and, and kids is certainly like a, a really good one to do. You know, because everybody's got to work. Everybody's had a leaky nappy and they've had to work out how to deal. So a leaky diaper and had to work out how to deal with it and and all of that kind of stuff. And, it, and it, you know, you can't be too proud to rep yourself when you've got a screaming baby wafting his bits in front of you as you're furiously trying to cover them up again. Well, and sh- shared trauma. Yes, that's exactly is, what it is. It's, it's like that shared, well, <laughs> that example of childhood. But like motherhood, in my opinion, as someone who is not a mother, but like, that to me feels like a shared celebratory experience, but a shared trauma also allows to create that like group mentality, yeah. right? Like we've all been through the same thing together. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, listeners will probably be able to hear that, you know, the three of us get on well, but actually where Tony and I, you know, we went for a drink several years ago and what we found was that we both lost a parent um, when we were younger. And I would say that the Dead Dads Club, as I call it, <laughs> like my friends yes, who were in you it, say that in the middle of it, is like, is, is incredibly tight right and across to you and you know and I just remember people like I'll just drop them a line on an anniversary or at some other point or where I think they're doing something and you you just sort of know right and I think those kind of shared experiences can be tremendously powerful as a way to get to know someone and and you know it can deceive you as well because you're less likely to think someone that you shared a quite an intense experience with or a thoughtful experience you know that that you know you're more likely to be generous to them in other situations but it can be hugely helpful in bridging divides you know and bring it back to biden yeah i mean partly it was people clearly have empathy for him for you know the awful situation that he went through with his first wife and with his kid where they were where they were killed and you know all of it and then losing another child like you know it's it's not just empathy but other people who have been through that will be like actually well, he's he's kind of the guy that's that's with us and it was you know, a, a few years, about a decade ago now, um, the leaders of both the main political parties in the UK, then the Prime Minister Gordon Brown and David Cameron, both lost a child, actually. Oh, Gordon yeah. Brown, when Jennifer Jane, when she was maybe 10 she days old, when she was born, and, and David Cameron had a severely disabled or, or handicapped for your American audience um, child who died when he was nine. And the PMQs from that week, the Prime Minister's questions, was it incredibly powerful? And you could just, you could clock that there was someone, there was something in common there. Um, and it, it's really interesting to me how those experiences can be really, really very powerful and can enable you to help have other discussions in a less inflammatory way. Because you're giving, oh, someone's got some yardstick to work through with you. Yeah. And so we like when leaders are trying to do things or tackle problems, it can often be really, you know, we use one of the examples in the book from, from Camp David with Yasser Arafat, actually, where um, Jimmy Carter, like, actually highlighted to people from Israel and from Palestine that, you know, that they were both grandfathers and they all, all three of them were. And they all had a conversation for a while talking about their grandkids um, before. And that actually, they, they all say, really helped them to then actually reach a, a, an accord, which, you know, fortunately, 
unfortunately did not hold. But you can see that in all sorts of walks of life. And for, for people who are listening who run t- teams that might not even be in politics and suddenly have to deal with a political issue, one of my one of my top tips to them would be help those teams find something else in common, not with the most crude icebreaker activity ever but help them try and do that before they find something they disagree with because it will enable a much much better conversation if you want a really tactical example my husband did this at his company they paired people in sets of two and they said we've discovered that you've one thing you've got in common and you've got an hour to figure out what that one thing is and sometimes it was as banal as you both have a y in your name and they did but what it meant is these people kept asking questions of like do you have dogs do you have pets where are you from where are you born and within an hour, they just were going back and forth going, oh my God, I've discovered so much about this person. Once in a while, they're like, we figured out what's the one thing. Or they were like, actually, we figured out there's 20 things that we have in common, yeah. which is genius. But it is interesting how just knowing you have a one thing in common with someone just allows for that warmth and empathy yeah. and desire to connect. I would love to pick up on something that you wrote in the book that I thought was so powerful and is also such a common thread that's something that Sorsha and I bring up all the time. You bring up a quote from the former leader of the Lib Dems of the UK, Liberal Democrats, and she acknowledges that there, and I quote, there is a high cost associated with changing your mind, which I thought was so incredibly interesting and powerful, especially from coming from someone in power, because it's something that Sorsha and I talk about all the time of, we've initially had these unscripted, unedited, very honest conversations for the last three years. And we often think about in a society today where people love to cancel each other out, even though I hate that term, for the slightest mishap or the slightest thing. I hope we look back at the conversations we had six months ago, two two years ago, and are able to cringe a little bit and go, God, I'm so glad to see I've learned so much since that day. I've grown so much. But that is so hard to do. But what I'm trying to get to is... How do we help people understand or help society understand that it is so much better for us to be humans that are constantly learning and growing and no one's perfect? And that comes with being able to say, you know what, I was wrong. You know what, I don't know. Or I actually changed my mind because of X, Y and Z. What Talk to yeah. me about that, because that feels like such a powerful thing to think about. Yeah, so Joe, who who gave that quote, yeah. was, she was she wanted to be leader of the Lib Dems and, and burned very very bright for her leadership, and then actually you know sort of as they called the election and how it manifested, like you know did not have a great time. But there was a time when people really thought that you know she would either become the opposition or, or very hopefully thought she might become the prime minister. And um, you know it, she's right because what happens is basically your own team ends up thinking you're disloyal and you've abandoned them, and the other team thinks that you're never really one of them because you were something else first and uh you know that that makes it really hard to change your political tribe and that's particularly true when there are not many political tribes to move between there are some cultures where it is much more common for new political parties to spring up or people move between they are typically not britain and america um you know and we can have a, a slightly you know not at all whole side discussion about <laughs> yeah. the number of political parties and how that reflects on on different things but then you know like israel has lots of political parties and it's not like they don't have a polarization problem so you know like it's not it's not not the only thing with what's going on oh that's an interesting parallel though yeah 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 you know and israel's a democracy so like people who are like change the voting system or let's just have loads of deliberative democracy you know when you do that scotland has changed the voting system um and has undoubtedly become more you know to single transferable vote for the 
nerds out there um and has undoubtedly become more polarized in the last decade since it did that than less polarized you know like well, so i would say with israel when you're looking at polarization you're looking at religious polarization the same rooted. way with northern ireland you're looking at like deeply rooted religious polarization that does have political tentacles don't get me wrong um but i would that's, but yeah. you know you can so there's three countries with pure this is now getting very techy there's three countries with pure PR in the world which is Israel Slovakia and the Netherlands and they sit at very across the full spectrum of the effective polarization measure which is how much you like your group and how much you dislike the other group so yes there's a fans of uh, of uh, yeah <laughs> fans of this I can send you some notes for the <laughs> podcast if you want but Absolutely. It is, it's a bit techy um, <laughs> Ali, because you bring up group, I wanted to actually ask you a question because it was used interchangeably in some aspects in the book around what is the difference between a group and a community? Yeah, so there's this, there's a group, groupism sits on a spectrum, you know, um, and you can, you can, it, people think like, you know, you're standing in a, a queue or a line for a shop. They think, oh, that's not a group. But hang on, everybody is following the same behavior and they're all interdependent and interacting on each other. But those bonds probably are quite temporary. Like you get out of a, a queue and you don't think, well, I feel really close to that person who was directly in front of me in that queue while I was buying some apples. You think, oh, well, thank God I bought the apples and you leave. But, you know, then you start looking at things like sports teams um or you start looking at family which can often be you know not always the case not everybody's in the you know I'm in a very fortunate position I get on very well with my family but like you know these ties and the, how close it is to your identity can be a thing and I suppose that's the that's the point is that you're more likely to be more groupish in your behavior when it's a closer part of your identity and if you're reminded of that identity all the time which in a polarized society or where they're going through and changing things you know like Brexit is not going away in the UK that is why the Brexit divide is not going to be changing the divide between the Democrats and the Republicans is, is not disappearing in the in the US and in fact it's infecting new areas so it's unlikely to be going away anytime soon you know um, uh, and we can talk maybe a bit mm. more about why things are likely there's more reasons why things are likely to get worse before they before they get better but that concept of like yeah. groups can sit and they don't just always permanently sit at one point you know like they can shift between it and people are more likely to identify with groups when they are winning than when they are losing so people who follow sports teams will be not surprised to see that you know if someone wins this study is showing that you know the amount of people who are wearing those it's, it's a football study Amer- american football football in u.s colleges um where they found that afterwards far more people bought and they then wore their school team jersey after victories than after losses and all of that kind of thing and this is you know where stuff starts to infect into like I say into other areas when it affects just purchasing decisions mm. or if you see someone buying a certain product quinoa yeah. then you can probably take an idea at how someone votes right and that is, you know, often yeah. big data is not as powerful as it could be. But some of those tells that people get, you know, if I saw someone buying quinoa, I might be like, oh, they're a Remain voter or a Democrat. Oh, I, I bet, I bet they're not in favour of stronger gun control. Oh, I bet they're, I bet they're not, I bet they're, I bet they're, uh, you know, not pro-choice. Oh gosh, she's got an unwanted pregnancy, and I'm a doctor. What should I recommend? Or maybe she won't like it if I do this. Maybe I'll get complaints. And that's that's the processes that go on that when you're in a very polarised society can become a real real challenge. Uh, thank you for for going into that because that was a piece where I was like in the book reading it of like what is my like how I actually reflected on that was like if I'm in an in an audience of people how do I introduce myself depends on who is in that audience and what groups 
they would align with from all the different components of my background. So like, do I introduce myself as someone who is at Nation Builder? Do I introduce myself as a cohort? Like the list continues of what you want to identify depending on the people in the room. And I'm curious, Sasha, based on that, do you have a tendency to look at that and go, I am going to identify myself as a thing that is going to be the most palatable for the person in front of me? Or do you have a tendency of going, I'm going to introduce myself as something who's fundamentally different from them because it's just going to be fun or why not? I'm just curious. Yeah, it depends. (laughs) If I'm feeling like, you know, let's get after it, then yeah. I mean, it's marketing, right? Like, you know, and, and some of it is, is very sensible to do that way like extremely sensible to do I'm really good you know you're sending people are busy you're sending them tailored sensible material that you think will be relevant to them but this is not an argument that that should never happen but if you're doing an awful lot of that then you might want to think about like are you reinforcing some groups and stereotypes like are you inadvertently fueling divides and should you try and do something to to bridge it and you know it never ever thought it never crossed my mind actually until after the Scottish referendum that that was something that was going on all the text that I was building that actually what I was doing was reinforcing identities and creating division and that tech had enabled that not not anything else and there was a big debate that Malcolm Gladwell started in the you know movement building um, community about clicktivism that you were just clicking on things and it didn't mean anything it didn't mean anything at all it had no impact and that is total nonsense that is total nonsense the fact that people can hold that view and at the same time oh well let's say well I saw something in my news feed on Facebook Facebook are completely controlling me like they're not even getting you to interact with the content right like if you're interacting and you're clicking and you're donating then you are building that as part of your identity often on a very subconscious level. And I think that was a, the more I've thought about it actually, and I think that was a particularly toxic stage and way for the debate to go, particularly how it persisted. Um, And I would be curious, I should try and get hold of him, ask Malcolm Gladwell if he has changed his mind on that now, because I bloody hope he has. So interesting. (sighs) Sorsh and I have spoke a lot about, again, like clicktivism was a big topic of ours last year, just like who has the right to tell me how I can and can't engage in certain things if I wouldn't normally engage in politics, but all of a sudden there's a button telling me to donate for a cause and I'm doing it. Hell yeah, you just got me engaged into something that I yeah. wouldn't Like that's a great, that's a good thing. Yeah. We should slowly wrap up, but there's a question here that, or there's something that you said at the start of this call that I want to touch upon a little bit that is maybe a little bit separate from polarization, but you said that you purposefully anchored this conversation of polarization in a with a big academic backbone. And I'd love to hear more about why that was important and why you did it. Again, talking about like marketing yourself and, you know, making sure that people read the thing that you want them to read. Like, why was that important for you and where did that come from? So I have two awesome co-authors, yeah. Alex, who's a behavioral scientist and is a conservative by background, and Laura, who was progressive-ish, first in a family to go to university and works for, in effect, the London Chamber of Commerce. She's oh. the, the voice of London wow. business. And um, and so we were all strong where the other one was weak. Um, I think that's it. But all of us um, were under 40 and it was our first book deal. And I think there was definitely part of it, like, how are we going to get taken seriously? Like, you know, we have to give this some heft, like really ground it in academia and in and in rigor and and go from there. Um, and there's an interesting juxtaposition that, you know, I know facts aren't what change mine. So why did I think if somebody was going to dismiss me because I was a young woman doing this, which unfortunately, I have to say, I have had some experience of particularly with older male white academics, um, uh, which has been like one. Of the, and, and often it was either because they didn't have the idea themselves or they didn't think of movement building in that way. 
um, you know, and go from there. So that was one of the things. But also we wanted to make a book that would last. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people who write books out there that feel very fleeting and of the moment. And we wanted a book that would be as useful in 10 years time as it is today. And so it would explain, like, why is it that we divide? Like, how is that likely to apply in the future? Like, to make it, as our, our, our publisher, Penguin Random House, commissioned a timeless classic. And we very much hope we've delivered one. That certainly seems to be the, the feedback that we've had and, you know, how it's being being translated and and used around the world so I think you know that's that was why it mattered to us to do it and the other thing is you know it can be a bit of a wild west digital campaigning slightly less than it used to be but you know it was really just keep throwing everything at the wall and see what see what stuck and um and, and that's you know part of the innovation process is continuing to do that you don't you don't want to don't want to kill that but like we thought it was about time that someone said, well, did that actually work? And what effects did that have? And it had the effects that you didn't intend it to, you know, and, and asked some really challenging questions of that community. And that's very much what we've, we've set out to do. And actually the, the filter bubble example is one that, that you showed. So Eli Parisa, who actually I, I know a little, and I, you know, he's built some, some pretty huge movements. He wrote a book called the filter bubble, which Cass Sensine, who's a hugely famous, um, uh, uh, author in terms of behavioral science, like also latched onto. We're all living in filter bubbles, and the problem is, is that we don't see enough of views that we disagree with to open our mind. And anyone who's done any engagement work will know that actually the best way to get anyone to engage is to show them something that makes them outraged. So of course we're showing them things from beyond their filter bubble. And you know, as I say, even then that the, all the evidence suggests that people who are in filter bubbles are the most politically engaged. So politically engaged people and movement builders made the mistake of thinking everybody else was like them when very often they're not and and that is a a huge huge big problem and I would say you know I'm going to stray on to like one of the best movement builders out there at the minute is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez there is absolutely no doubt about that and how she engages people and what she does and the amount that she raises and all of that there's a company called Goya Foods this book this is a new this will go in the paperback version of the, the book um, and Goya Foods is a Hispanic food company based in the US and there it's family based so quite hard to remove people and their chief exec made some pretty positive comments about Trump um, post uh, both pre and post the insurrection on the 6th of January you know and that was not good and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez sort of said we should boycott these people if you looked at social media you would think oh my god this boycott stuff was huge what actually happened was in Republican states more people bought Goya food and they had a peak in their sales for three weeks whilst it was you know whilst it was salient and that is almost certainly not the effect that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wanted to have but who is even asking those questions in the movement building community because she will have hit like she had a, she you know knocked it out of the park in terms of social media coverage probably I would imagine in terms of amount raised engagement stuff you know you can go back to people and say we've really hit this look we've dominated social media and there's a guy called called Matt Singh who is this fantastic saying you know in British context Twitter is not Britain Twitter is basically nowhere like as a representative thing and people think it is all the time that's really delusional yeah, it's a teeny tiny postcode of pe- lots of people from a certain very vocal that all think alike. Yeah, all look the same. <laughs> that all look and sound like each other, and very few of them who change their mind. Can I ask you two a question before we? No, my my question to you two is: When did you last change your mind? What was it on, and why did you change it? Fucking brilliant question, um, Tony. While you think about that, there was a because I will also answer it. But there was a quote that I pulled. 
from your book that I want to say out loud. People buy the book, all the things, but like this has stuck with me and I've literally like written it on a sticky note. Um, Individuals deal with individuals, but we often don't treat individuals as individuals. We treat them as members of a group. And in doing so, we bring a freight of preconceived misconceptions and judgments. And that hit me like a fucking ton of bricks as I like read it and read it again and read it again. Because I I know I've done that. I can like visualize it in my head. And that's a call to action that I will put out to our listeners there. Like, check yourself when you do that. And there is evolution. Evolutionary, there's really good reasons why we've done that. 100%. Right? You know, which helps you identify who is safe and who is not. And this is why I was saying, like, it's really hard to rewire your brain. So think about the environment in which you give your time space to give your to have longer thought processes. But one of the reasons I think things are going to get worse before they get better is having that space is harder in an environment with more data where you're being bombarded all of the time or where, you know, there's greater gaps between rich and poor or greater uncertainty. And all of these are being created by the tech and pandemic and other kinds of environments. So, you know, I, I wish I had my, my very cheery note before I come back to you guys to answer the question is things are, are probably going to get worse before they get better, but they should they should get better. But yeah, so what have you changed your mind on? So I I am happy to say that I probably changed my mind on a weekly, monthly basis now. And I think it mostly it's with people like my husband and Saoirse, which I have, because I have deep trust in where they are coming from and I'm willing to sit down and listen to their opinion, I am happy to walk away and go, you know what? Okay. But I realize it's not the giant things. The, the the last time I fundamentally changed my mind was actually with someone from Nation Builder who was, I was very pro-choice. He was pro-life. And I just really fucking couldn't get there. I was like, I'm so, I just, there's no earthly reason why you would ever convince a woman to keep a kid that they might not want. And he was the result of that experience. And so having someone sit there going, look, this is my personal belief. This is why as a man, I am pro-life sitting there and I I honestly walked away from that conversation which was probably like a week two week long conversation that we had I walked away going you know what I can see that there are certain instances where the outcome isn't terrible so that was probably the biggest biggest like mind shift that I have but I honestly think I definitely stuck to my guns for most of my 20s probably until my 25 in my 30s I am now very comfortable changing my mind almost on a weekly weekly basis that's why I think that quote from Joe stuck with me is that I find that I actually enjoy people who change their mind more than people who don't and I've shifted my mindset of not they are flip-floppy or I can't trust them or they don't know what they want to these are people who are willing to grow yeah constantly and I think that's really interesting that you know we say is willing to grow is a compliment to people but we don't include in that changing your mind and actually we did a podcast with Joe where she talks about changing her mind on liking broccoli and also rather more substantive things like how women should be represented in politics she's great it's a good fun podcast what about you Saoirse where do you sit with that the last big one uh was 2019 and it was and changing my mind is like I'm trying to make sure like my understanding of changing my mind, I think I'm grounding more in empathy to see someone else's viewpoint, which I don't think is exactly what you're asking, Ali, because the the story I'm about to share is around gun control um, and an experience I had with someone who is now honestly a good friend of mine um, that is pro-Second Amendment and 
all types of bells and whistles, whether it's an AK-47, a handgun, a, a, you know, enter in the different types of machinery. And I, I don't believe that you should be able to walk into a Walmart and buy a gun. But from that hours, like seven hours of exposure to his experience and his deeply held belief on the right to bear arms... I, I no longer have a like visceral reaction when someone tells me that they want to own a gun or, or that they are owning a gun because of their own personal experience. Whereas pre that, I was a bitch to anyone who was like, I own a gun. It just, it was like fundamentally not okay for me. And so 2018 was the last time I had like a true like mental shift in my ability to like hear why someone would choose to own a gun. I often find that there's a, and and things are not always as black and white. They can be much more gray as you've both given beautiful examples of, but like often those experiences, you can have a very different conversation with someone about gun control when they're from that background, as opposed to when they've grown up in an urban environment where guns are probably much, much more associated with violence. And I, both views are, are not just more like they're really legitimate, but like suddenly you understand that maybe there is a use case for people having guns, you know, which is slightly different to people bearing arms, but like that, that, wouldn't have been front of mind because understandably people haven't had it as their lived experience, right? And it's actually important that you bring up the bare arms piece though there, Ali, because like I, the the construct of owning a gun and having one in your house versus like bearing arms and like physically walking around with a fucking gun like blew my mind. And the person I'm speaking about, that was what they knew and what they believed. And they were infuriated that their rights to bear arms were restricted in the physical location that we were in, which is actually a part of like the trigger of that conversation. Well, and it sounds like it was part of their identity for them being an 100%. American. Part of it was, and it's literally it's baked in the constitution and stuff is the right to bear arms. And I, you know, for Europeans, I'm conscious that we're three Europeans having this discussion. So it's really alien to us, some of the gun control stuff. But like, I, I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who was pretty senior in the military about this. And I was kind of like, oh, and he was like, it was like, honestly, like these people with bearing, bearing arms, like they're not going to be cracked, crack squad in the civil war. And he was like, I'd rather have them than a bunch of other people, you know? And he was like, it's not, he's like, I'm with it. I think they'd be, and I was like, that was not what I expected him to say. And it checked. I don't think it necessarily changed my belief, but I was like okay this is probably a bit more complex than I had previously given it you know and I think that's the key thing Ali everything that I have realized reading through your book is never black and white it is always way more layered and way more complex than we could ever start to imagine because every time you have that conversation you start pulling out all the different layers and where you come at it from and your own definition like the social you just said my own definition of not actually the right to own guns it's the right to bear up like it's different Ali Thank you so, so, so much for A, writing the book with your two co-authors and spending the time to like share all your wisdom and knowledge on this, but also joining us on the podcast today. Yes. So it's been a pleasure to do to see both of you and to do a podcast with, with two friends that has involved a decent cracker swearing because that's quite, <laughs> that's quite important to my British identity. Yes, that's and a people personality who are, trait. All of that, us. The only way we can there's function. Some, there's some great Ricky Ver 
Gervais content out there at the minute about how Kent is a, is a, a compliment in, in Britain and it really is with us too one fucking hundred percent but out here you cannot you like my great apologies for the swearing but like it really like and I am not bringing I am not going to advocate for that being the latest British invasion to America after the Beatles late blazed a trail like this is the latest thing they need to adopt but like that is a wild cultural difference that I'm still not acclimatized to uh, no I've been here 10 years and there's no acclimation for that. Um, I'm going to wrap us on a really nice note from your book. Since we are all a part of the problem, we all have the opportunity to be a part of the solution of polarisation. Thank you. That's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do feel inclined to do so, please give us a review. This is absolutely what will help us grow. Thank you. Thank you.